Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13 and find verses 11 to 14 where we will focus our attention this morning. And please stand with me as we read Romans chapter 13 verses 11 to 14. Romans chapter 13, begin in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we need what you offer. Help us. We see the beauty and the wonder of what's coming, but our souls and our lives are so often anchored to this age. Help us to live as those who can't but help long for what's coming and live for what's coming. Help us to feel the reality that the day that we want so badly is at hand. And as we know it and feel it, by your grace, enable us to live as though it's true. Help us, we need it. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I think you can be seated. Well, I had a really big introduction on Augustine because this is the passage that Augustine was saved by reading, but Stefan took too long. So... I'll summarize it in one sentence. If we love God, if you love Augustine, just send me an email, I'll forward it to you. But if we love God, our love for God will be demonstrated by our pursuit of purity. If we love God, our love for God will be demonstrated by our pursuit of purity. Paul, in Romans 13, he is in a zone. It's like when Sammy Sosa was hitting all those home runs in the early 2000s. It's like Michael Jordan in the NBA Finals. It's like Patrick Mahomes when he's down 10 points. I mean, they just like zone in, and there is nothing that can stop them. They are going, that's Paul in Romans 13. He is bringing the heat. He has shown us who we are in Romans chapters 1 through 3. We are depraved. We are in desperate need of God's work in our lives. He's shown us faith at the end of chapter 3 and in verse 4. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he shows us what the product of faith is, all of the wonderful benefits of salvation. Then chapters 9 through 11, Paul just makes sure we understand this. He shows us that God will never leave us because of how he's treated Israel. They're the evidence that God is faithful to what he's promised in chapters 9 through 11. And now, after we finish the beautiful doctrine of Romans in the first 12 chapters, he demands a response from the Romans at the end of the book. You can't have the doctrine of Romans without the duty that God calls you to. 
What can we do when we realize who we were and what God has done but to respond in a life of love for him when we live for God? And from chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the beginning of the application section, we see that we must live for God if we understand God and what he has done for us. And we're in this unit of thought from Romans 12 to the end of Romans 13. And we see that we have to live for God if we rightly understand who God is and what God has done for us. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, and our passage today, Romans 13, 11 to 14, they're, they're the bookends on this unit of general application that Paul gives us. But he's demonstrating to us that there's something about this age that we live in that changes how we live. Look at how verse 11 begins. Paul says, besides this, you know the time. Our pursuit of purity demands that we know the time. And perhaps we could say it like Doug Moo. He translates it like this. And do this especially as you are knowing the time. Because we know the time, we live in a certain way. So because you know all this, Paul says, you got to live like this. But what is this time? Well, you can flip back a chapter, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a very familiar passage. Paul, he's, he's hammering in this section. He's hammering one nail with a bunch of different hammers. Uh, he's taking one question and he slightly twists it and turns it and gives us answers from every different angle. But look there in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He begins, I appeal to you, therefore. So I think that therefore stretches all the way back to the beginning of the book of Romans. He says, because of all this, I appeal to you, I beg you, I as gently as possible command you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Now think about that word world there for just a second. It's not spatial like we often think about it. It's the whole encompassing of what this epic or aeon is. You've heard eons and eons. That's, that's, that's what this is. It's an age. It's the age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and perfect and acceptable. And you say, well, I didn't see time. That's because that word we translate world means it's the age. It's this age that we live in. We're not to be conformed to this age. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be conformed to this age. This age is where we live sacrificially to please God. We die to ourselves to live for God. This world around us, this age that we live in, though, that is the opposite of how it lives. The age around us lives lavishly to please itself. But our creed as Christians, Jesus' call to us as those who want to follow him, deny yourself Pick up your cross and follow him. The world says, this age says, make yourself happy. Do what you want. You be you. There's a difference. Don't be conformed to this age. This age we have because Christ has come. Imagine it used to be from anticipation. Now it's the inauguration of this age, from longing to living in this age. This is the age of becoming what we are going to forever be for us. 
That's the message of this section of Romans. That's how you take the beauty of what God has done for you in the gospel and live in a way that makes much of him. Because of who God has saved us to be, we are being transformed and we're being transformed out of this age into the age that is to come. Paul is saying, live like you're a product of the future. Live like you're a product of the glorification that's been promised to you by the Christ that has saved you. Summarize chapter 13, verse 11. You could say, Paul is saying, live like you're a product of Christ's work. Why? Well, he gives us three reasons in verses 11 and 12. And these reasons are not simply polemical, uh, but they're infused with hope. They're filled with anticipation and laced with evidence that what God has promised is going to come true. Middle of verse 11, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Wake up. That's what Paul says. Now, in the ancient world, there was no electricity. There were no alarm clocks. There was, everybody shared one alarm clock, and it wasn't a rooster, it was the sun. The sun was the alarm clock. No artificial light meant you didn't really stay up at night because to stay up at night, you had to burn wood that you had to go gather. You didn't want to do that. You didn't want to burn oil because that's what you ate. So you just went to bed when the dark came, and you got up when the sun came. Novel concept. I like to teach my kids sometime, but <laughs> Paul says, wake up. Because it's light. You're in the day. In the old days, in the ancient days, you saw the light coming up over the horizon and you got out of bed because you wanted to, because the work that you had to do was way better to do in the morning than in the hot noonday sun. The heat was coming, so they woke up and they worked. Paul says, don't be a slackard, but he's not talking about your vocation. He's talking about your sanctification. He says, don't be a spiritual slackard because the day is coming. A spiritual lethargy brought on by being comfortable in the past evil age keeps us from the sanctification that should be produced in us when we look to with anticipation to the future glorious age where we'll be face to face with our Savior. So be alert. Wake up. Be active in presenting your body as a spiritual sacrifice. That's, that's what this is talking about. You're called to give all of yourself to Christ. And you give bits and pieces. You give a Tuesday afternoon here and a fourth Thursday there. Be active in presenting your whole life to God because it's daytime. End of verse 12. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is just an absolute axiomatic truth that we get to chew on as believers. This can't not be true. And yet we forget it. We, we think, oh, it's, it's too hard. It's been too long. No, friend. Today is closer than yesterday. Jesus is coming. The final, full, complete, total salvation is at hand. Maybe you're thinking, well, I thought I was already saved. Absolutely, you're saved. But do you sin? Will you die? Would you like to behold Jesus face to face and be glorified? Someday we'll have our final deliverance, our total sanctification, our glorification will be done. We won't long to look more like Jesus someday. Can you imagine that? You say, no, I'm good now. You're in sin. Someday you'll say, no, I'm good because I'm good. We'll be glorified humanity. Hope that idea rings a bell. Who's glorified humanity? Only Jesus now. 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, though, it says it's our hope. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This isn't talking about six packs and hair. This is talking about sanctification. This is talking about glory. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Romans 13, 11 says it like this, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. For many, they've died and they became present with the Lord in, in a moment. But for us, maybe we will be here when he comes to get us. Does that not motivate you to holiness for the sake of Jesus' glory? That we are closer to him today than we were yesterday? Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Paul's telling us the ages past are far gone. He's building urgency. He's growing our anticipation for the glory of what's coming. We're living in the age of light, waiting on Christ. The night is far gone. The day's at hand. How do we live? Do we live like this afternoon Jesus may come back? If Wednesday afternoon Jesus was coming back and he sent you a save the date card, would you not maybe perhaps change things on Monday and Tuesday? Why wait? This says he's coming back. This says he's at hand. Are you ready? He's coming back for his own. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, the Lord is at hand. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 to 17, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise and then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we'll always be with the Lord. Friend, when is that happening? It says it's happening soon. It's coming. He's coming back. But until then, we have a calling. It's a calling that's perfectly glorious and worthy of our whole entire life. It's not to rest. It's not to have fun. It's not to fill our souls with spiritual junk food. True rest is coming. When Jesus comes back for you, you can rest then, but it's not now. Yesterday wasn't the day. Today may be the day. Are you ready? You work during the day. The day is at hand. Do you feel it? Do you work? Do you labor because the Lord is coming back? Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 reminds us that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Do you know that? This is not your age. You don't live in this age. You breathe heavenly air. Or do you? Are you living in the light or are you living in the darkness? These are metaphors that Paul is using to ask you to ask yourself, who are you? Jesus died to deliver humanity from darkness. Did he die for you? You can't say you don't know. Because if you're in darkness, he didn't. And if you're in light, he did. That's the only way we move from darkness to light is his death and faith in what he's done. The day is coming where all will be made known. Are you in light or darkness? The day is coming. You say, what day? Did you know in 1988 there was a book published? 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. It wasn't a bestseller. 
seems silly, but the real silly book was 89 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. That was the dumb one. Like, come on, man. We can't predict this. We don't know the hour that Jesus is coming back. He will come, as he tells us, like a thief in the night. It will be sudden. It's unexpected. The point is that Jesus is at hand, so you must live like it. He is coming back. This is imminence of Christ. This is assurance of his return. Jesus is coming back for you, so live like it. Jesus didn't lie when he left his disciples in the upper room, and he says, John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's our greatest promise as believers. Do you live like it's coming true? Today is closer to Christ's return than yesterday. Praise God. The wrongs will be righted someday. The hopes that we have will be realized someday. And Jesus is coming back, and we pray maybe it's today. You look around. Do you really want to stay here? The only way that you could be satisfied with this age and this world is if you're filled with with it, and you haven't tasted Christ. But when you get a little eschatology in your heart, and your heart skips a beat at the surety of Christ coming back for his own, when the imminence of our Savior and his permanence with us is realized, as you wake from your slumber, you stop living in this age, for this age, and you set your soul's sights on heaven where our Savior will soon be calling us to himself. We need our Savior to return. We need to look to that day and not this day because the king that we long for, he's at hand and he said, I'm coming so we can trust him. And that day is drawing near. And Jesus is going to come, and he's going to come as a conquering king. He'll come robed in majesty. He'll come high and lifted up in honor. He'll come crowned in glory. He'll come on a white horse ready to make war, ready to vindicate his own glory, ready to occupy David's throne, ready to wipe out the darkness that's plagued humanity since the exile from the garden. Jesus will come, and he'll be our king of kings. He'll be our Lord of lords. And on that day, our hopes will be realized, and all of our promises will be fulfilled, all the sorrows that we have will be set aside in their longings. They'll be satisfied in what he has done. And on that day, we'll find that we live in the light. And yet, you don't have to wait. Live in the light, friend. Let me say it like this. When you long for the righteous judge to return, to vindicate his glory, you also long to be on his side and not on the enemy's side. You want to be found awake. You want to be found living for him, not sleeping in your own sin in the darkness of debauchery. The foundation of our faith stirs our hope. It motivates our watchfulness. It invigorates our anticipation. It diminishes worldly satisfaction because we know the new age is coming when forever we'll be just like our Savior and King, glorified as he is. Friend, Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Wake up. Know the time. Second, prepare for war. Paul's command for us in the middle of verse 12 is simple. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
So then. Paul is saying, so because of all this that you know, and why you know it, because of God's work, because of the imminent return of Christ, the day is at hand. So what do you do? You sanctify yourself. You set yourself apart, ready unto him to be useful for him. You get yourself ready in the context for the war that is upon you. You cast off or you put off in verse 12 and you put on in verse 12. It's a pair of imperatives that often go together. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And I think being a biblical translator would be one of the most impossible, difficult jobs there are. But in this instance, I do wish they would have contacted me. Believe it or not, they didn't. When you cast off something, this is the language we often see translated put off. And then when you put on something, you take something off and you put something on, almost always in reference to clothing. The NESB says lay aside. Why? I don't know. Because in many other places they translate this as put on and put off. I wonder, have you ever had a baby throw up on you? When that happens, do you wander around throughout the rest of the day? Hmm. It's a fresh little baby smell. Is that what we do? No, it's like, oh man, I am getting this thing off. I am casting it off. I am putting it off. I am taking it off and I'm putting, putting something preferably clean back on. This is what Paul is talking about. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Put off the old self. Paul says, take off the old self like the nasty shirt that it is and put on the new self. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Get rid of the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The second command. From taking off the works of darkness to wearing, I'll say, the weapons of light. Again, this is not an easy phrase to translate, but I think a pacifist translated this verse. This is not armor. This is weaponry. Ephesians 6.11 talks about our armor because that word is armor. This is the word for weapons. This is the word for what you use to attack something. This is the active side of the soldier fighting. These are weapons of light. Get ready for war because war is upon you. Take your silly, sinful self off and strap up with whatever weapons you can wear and fight for the glory of God. Don't check your guns in the gun safe. Instead, put your gun belt on. Load your magazines. Get ready. Whatever you need to advance the agenda of Christ, you do that here with these. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We're saints in light. Why? Because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you remember as we studied through that passage, that's, that's language of an elite fighting force going and stealing captors and bringing them back to their side. It's language of buying people out of slavery into freedom. That's what God has done for us. We've been saved out of darkness into light. We've been ransomed, redeemed, transferred from darkness into light. So where's the battlefield that this happens on? Where's the battlefield you wear your weapons of light into? End of verse 12 tells us too often we think we're supposed to be fighting the lgbtq agenda or battling the epistemology of cultural marxism no the battlefield is defined in romans 13 12 if you're putting off works and deeds of darkness and you're putting on weapons of light that means you're to bring the fight to your sanctification 
That's the war that you're to engage in. You're to labor and battle and struggle and you brawl and you scrap and you slice and you bite and you fight and you punch your way out of darkness into light. That's the battle that you get. Why why does Paul tell us to prepare for, for war? Because you're in a war. When Peter was caring for and warning and encouraging and loving the elect exiles of Asia Minor that he was writing to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he reminds them who they are. They're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They were, they were not even Roman citizens. And he says, you're, you're what God wants. You're who you are because of what Christ has done. You're designated for God's possession. Why? Because he wants you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness unto himself. And how do you respond to that? How do you respond to living in the light? First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter says you're a sojourner. You're just going from here to there. You're in exile. By definition, where you are is not your home. So live like it. And how does he suggest we live like it? By waging war against those things that seek to destroy our soul. I wonder, what do you call a soldier who doesn't fight back? Ordinarily, you call them dead. Do you fight in the holy war that you're in? War. You're in a war. A word that means devastation and, and destruction. A word that means chaos and terror. A word that some seek victory and power through. Others find they're vanquished and conquered. War. The holy war. John Bunyan was a soldier in his youth. A nonconformist pastor in 1600s England. Exiled to jail in the height of his ministry. He knew about The holy war. In fact, he fought the holy war day after day, week after week, year after year, through trials and suffering, losing people in his family, through death, their imprisonment, his imprisonment for preaching the gospel, his impoverishment for loving Christ more than a bureaucracy, an alien amongst his own people, because he wouldn't just bow down to the state run religion. He knew the war that raged in his soul, and he wrote the book on the holy war. The title of the book. The Holy War. You've likely heard of Pilgrim's Progress, but I even like this one more sometimes. It's a simple allegory, as Bunyan often did. There was a war fought on the soil of man's soul. A war waged between the wicked army of Diabolos and the benevolent king, El Shaddai, and his delivering prince and son, Emmanuel. Bunyan got it. The quest for personal holiness is, in fact, war. Bunyan was a warrior for his own holiness. Over 300 pages of Diablos and his assaults and Emmanuel and his attacks and man's soul and our utter failure. What Bunyan showed in 1682 with his classic allegorical tale of sanctification rings true today. If you want to be holy, friend, you have got to go to war. My question for you is are you ready for war? Because understand, if you're in Christ, you've been called to battle. You've been drafted into this war. This war is simple. Like many other wars, you win and you live. You lose and you die. And you're in this war for your very life. But it's 
Not like a normal war where two countries don their uniforms and meet on the field of battle. Instead, it's a war fought between two kingdoms. It's a war fought between two ages. And the battlefield is your soul. You see, before salvation, before you turn from your sin and you turn from yourself and you trust in the work of Christ alone, you're living in that kingdom. You're living in that age where darkness reigns. But when Christ saves you by his grace through faith in him and his work, you live in this age and this kingdom where Jesus reigns. Before salvation, John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus was a terrible evangelist. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Those those are the words that bring war. That's who you were. My question is it who you are. That's hopelessness, but we have every hope that we will win this holy war when we live in the light and we put on the weapons of light. This raging war between good and evil, though it rages in our soul, we have every faith and confidence knowing with assurance that someday Jesus is coming back for us and he will strike the final blow that we could not and he will bring us to himself and he will glorify us and we will never have to battle sin again. But while we've been saved from the world, we've been left in the world to wage war against evil and our flesh. And in our battles, we heap praise upon praise upon God through Christ's work who has saved us. And yet somehow, I find it fascinating, somehow Christians are able to convince themselves that they live in some sort of spiritual Disneyland where they can just wander through life and expect to around every turn find a funnel cake or a turkey leg. I guess that's the fair. But anyway, Christians, this world is not a playground. It's a field of war. You cannot forget the one who prowls around seeking to devour your soul. You cannot underestimate the enemy, the body of death that is the flesh that you carry. But friends, take heart and have hope because you can rest in heaven and Jesus is a hand. He's coming back for his own. But until then, we wage war against the evil world that holds eternal souls in their sway and we hack away at our flesh like our life depends on it because it does. We must persevere. Brothers and sisters, you need to know you are smack dab in the middle of a holy war. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. Prepare for war. Paul illustrates and reminds us of the uniforms that each side wears in this war in verse 13. Either you walk properly if you're in the light or you walk in Orgies, which is really more danger or anger. Orgies are drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality, and quarreling and jealousy if you're in darkness. Those are the two uniforms. Some of you need to genuinely and with humility check the label on your uniform. If you're in the light, then your heart runs to Christ. You walk properly in the light. The ruts of your life, they leave a trail to the living water and the bread of life. You find yourself migrating towards him. Your life has habits that run you into the presence of God in scripture and worship and fellowship and prayer. 
Those are the immovable pillars that hold up the realities of your life. They're not the carport that you added onto later because you realized you needed a little something extra. Friend, Paul is warning us this is a fight. This is a, a war. He's setting in front of us the two sides, two uniforms. Which one fits you? You know the time. The hour has come to wake from your sleep. You're closer to Christ's return today than yesterday. For those who are in the light, praise God, that's amazing. For those who are in the darkness, your day is coming. Everyone dies, and after death comes judgment. You don't want to face Christ in judgment. See, too often the list in verse 13 is viewed as the enemies who we're to fight against. No. They're the mission field. They need evangelized. Perhaps they need disciplined out of the church. If they're confused and think they're in the church, you can't live in these ways as the normal practice and habit of your life and think that you're in the light. That's what Paul is saying. But they're not our enemy. But if these sins are in your life on the regular, then Paul is warning you, take heed, Jesus is coming back. Are you sure? Do you know him? Are you ready to meet him? Now, maybe you're a Christian. And you look at these sins and you're like, ah, I don't do those. But you dabble in idolatry. You dip your toe into living for yourself. And you have friends on Facebook who are definitely more greedy than you and more selfish than you. And you're not jealous of anything. But perhaps you're not jealous of anything because you have everything that you want. And you think, I'm fine. That's a dangerous place to be. Do you not know that Jesus died for you so that you could live for him? The spirit of this vice list is very simple selfishness. If you're selfish, if you want you more than you want Jesus, you can just pencil your name into the list. You don't have to find your pet sin there. Jesus didn't die for you to have a comfortable life with all you want and no trouble and no problem and no suffering. Jesus died so that you would love him. Jesus died so that you would live for him. And when you love him and live for him, you'll be pursuing purity. If your life is so good and easy that you don't need Jesus and your life is not honoring to Jesus, then just because you don't see your sin here in this list doesn't mean your name's not there. Ultimately, this is the broad road that leads to destruction. All these vices are describing the broad road. All these vices are describing selfishness. I wonder for you, where are the struggles in your life because Christ is worth more than you can give out of your abundance? Where do you say no to self and yes to Christ? Is there nowhere, friend? Selfish living, greedy, wanting, constant preservation of yourself instead of dying to live for him. That's what this list is all about. And we can look at each other and say, no big deal. Don't worry about what you think. Worry about what Christ thinks. Can I ask you, do you live for him, the one who died for you? Do you actively, purposefully, willfully, passionately live for him? Or do you just live to not do the stuff you can't do? I wonder if for you, are there areas of your life that say Jesus reigns here? 
That's not a good thing. Your whole life should say Jesus reigns here. Brothers and sisters, the reason some of us fall into these sins, these orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, and quarreling and jealousy is because we reign in our own life and not Jesus. Jesus gets a slice of our life, but not all of it. If that's true, check your jersey. Check your uniform. Are you walking properly in the daytime? Are you fighting the flesh with the weapons of light? Are you a subject of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is Jesus Christ just one of the many subjects of your life? He's the king. He's coming back. He's at hand. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest weapon for this divine fight in the holy war is verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our pursuit of purity demands that we put them on. But notice the first word of verse 14. But, what's that mean? That means there's a difference. That means there's a contrast. There is a difference between a believer walking in the light and a person that's trapped in darkness. And it's not your morality. It's not how you file your taxes. It's not if you shovel, shovel, shovel your neighbor's snow. It's not how much you tithe. The difference is not if you upgrade your house or not. The difference is not if you cuss. The difference isn't anything to do with your past traditions or your church attendance. The difference is very simple. You put on Christ. Or you don't. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate weapon of light in your life. You can't hope to be sanctified and grow in holiness simply by getting rid of sin. You have to put on Christ. One of my favorite classes in college was a chemistry lab, believe it or not. Not because I had a particular fondness for chemistry. Didn't like it one bit. But I love my chemistry lab professor. He was passionate about chemistry. He was a cool dude from Nigeria. He loved chemistry. And I remember the first day of chemistry class, the only class in college I remember the first day, because for the first hour, he lectured on safety. And I was about ready to see if I could sneak out. <laughs> but then he said, today, we're going to have our first assignment. He put us in groups of five with our partners. And he showed us all this cool stuff, Bunsen burners, Chemicals that popped and flamed when you did stuff to them. Dry ice and vacuum pump and a regular air pump and all the hoses and couplings. And then he put this one liter beaker in front of us. He said, here's your assignment. You have five minutes. You need to get all the air out of the beaker. Hmm. I like a challenge. So we went at it. We almost broke our beaker with water and dry ice. But anyway, we started having fun. And he said, okay, okay, okay. We gave up. So let me tell you how to do it. Takes the beaker, he puts it underneath the faucet, turns the water on, fills it up with water, and says, sometimes the simplest solution to your equation is the best solution. All the water, or all the air is out of the beaker. Friend, too many of you are trying things, making experiments, loading your lives with formulas and efforts to be sanctified, to get rid of the sin when you're told to fill your soul with Jesus Christ. Arm yourself with the weapon of the fullness of Christ. Fill your soul so full of Christ that you don't want the junk this age has to offer. 
Fill your soul with Christ. Read of his anticipation in the Old Testament. Read of his incarnation in the Gospels. Read of his explanation in the epistles. Read of his anticipation in John's revelation, the apocalypse. Fill your mind with Christ and worship him in prayer. Worship him in communion. Long to know him. Long to know his motives. Long to know him so well that when you think you think like him, when you feel you feel like him, fill yourself with Christ and you won't want the junk of this life. Put on Christ. You really have no other hope. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 reminds you, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Could you imagine living a life where every decision you made was made by Christ? Why? You don't have to imagine it. You can live that life. Fill your soul with Christ and you'll lose lose your sin. When you hate your sin and you're filled with Christ and you put on the weapons of war and you live in the light, can you imagine that life? Maybe you think, you know, that might be kind of boring because you don't get to do the fun stuff. That should tell you something about yourself. should tell you what you're wearing. And it's not light, it's darkness. But that kind of life, if you choose to live it, You won't be filled with the world. Instead, you will change the world. Wesley had this to say about that kind of life. He was speaking about mediocre pastors, and he said they are not spiritual. They are not alive to God. They are soft. They are innervated. I had to look it up. It means tired. They're fearful of shame, toil, hardship. Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Here's what I like about that letter. He wrote it to a friend when he was 87. Where are those men who fear nothing but sin and want nothing but more of God? Where are those women who fear nothing but sin but want nothing but more of Christ, who want to put him on more than they want to put on anything else in their life? I'll tell you where they're at. Too often they're dabbling in sin, content to have a little bit. Instead, put on Christ. Don't give mercy to that which murdered our Savior and King. Put on Christ. Fill your soul with a living water and see your worldly desires pushed out. Our pursuit of purity demands we put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Did you hear the and? There's an and. End of verse 14 is where so many people want to start their efforts in sanctification but you can't. Notice this phrase does not stand alone. It will not stand alone. It won't work alone. You can't use this single strategy to fight sin and win. It's vital, but it cannot work without the enabling power of the Spirit and the wonderful satisfaction that putting Christ into our souls brings. But this is where I see most people start in their efforts for sanctification. And on the one hand, it's vital, so don't stop. But don't fail to see middle of verse 14, and. Perhaps the most instructive conjunction in sanctification. If you're not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, then the sin you're trying to avoid, you won't. 
But when you're putting on Christ with one hand, you must be active in putting off sin with the other. That's why we see fourth, you give no quarter, you show no mercy, you make no provision for the flesh. You starve your sin until it's dead. You allow no opportunity, you provide no excuse, you give no hope for sin to live. You slaughter it. Too many Christians seek to wean themselves off of sin, especially sexual sin, that they like sexual sin that they can hide and has no apparent immediate consequences. They keep it alive. They make provision for the flesh. They show it mercy. They give it quarter. They appease sin. And it's proof that they're not putting on Christ because Christ will not abide with what he died for you to be saved from. Flee from sin. The idea Paul provides is to not give attention to, don't plan to, don't even allow foresight to consider these things. Paul is calling for an all-out abolition of our flesh's opportunities to encounter sin or make plans for sin or opportunities for sin. But how do we make no provision for the flesh? Well, I want to give you 14 ways. <laughs> It'll be quick. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm not preaching next week, so I got to get this in. First, feed our flesh satisfaction in Christ. Be a Christian hedonist, as John Piper says. You've been created to seek satisfaction. When you find satisfaction in Christ, man, it's like a all-you-can-eat buffet. Go for it. Gorge yourself on it. The more you want of Christ, the less you want of the world. Second, pursue a life of useful activity for Christ. Be more busy with the things of the Lord. Quit wasting your time with junk and then find yourself sucked into sin. Third, view sin like God does. This makes, it might sound like confession, but I want to call it pre-confession. Don't wait until you sin to view sin as awful. Think about sin like God does. Remind yourself what you've been saved from in appropriate ways. Fourth, never put off repentance Never put off repentance. When you sin, not if, but when you sin, run to God and beg for forgiveness. Because if you don't, you'll turn one sin into two. You'll turn two sins into ten. And then pretty soon you wonder who you are. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Run to him. Fifth, Dwell at the cross. Dwell at the cross. Just sit there in your quiet times, in your meditation, as you're driving to work, as you're at work. I don't care. As long as you're doing your job, think about the cross. One of the beautiful things about the early Puritans was their passion for the cross. They couldn't get away from the cross. They lived there. You should too. Because the cross sanctifies us. It sets us apart. It keeps us in check. It makes the new age more glorious and wonderful than the old Listen to one of my favorites, Stephen Charnock, Christ crucified. He says this, how willingly then should we part with our sins for Christ and do our duty to him? Oh, that we could in our measures part as willingly with our lusts as he did with his blood. He parted with his blood when he needed not. And shall not we with our sins when we ought to do so for our own safety as well as for his glory? Since Christ came to redeem us from the slavery of the devil and strike off the chains of captivity, he that will remain in them when Christ with so much pains and affection hath shed his blood to unloose them, prefers the devil and sin before a savior. 
If you can't dwell at the cross like that on your own, then ask a dead guy for help. They are good at it. Sixth, don't fight alone. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. If you're doing this alone, you're not doing it. Get help. Seventh, remember Halt, Tim Chester's book, Hungry, Angry, Lonely, or Tired. Wise Christians pay attention when there are any of these things. They pursue Christ. They are careful to avoid the things that make them weaker around temptation. Eighth, don't be a fool. Let me offend you for a moment, but understand I'm seeking to offend all of you equally, none of you specifically. When you're finding yourself overtaken by sin and you ask for help, then don't be a fool and not listen to help. Proverbs 26, 7, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you're wounded by a friend, praise the Lord and listen and realize I got myself into this mess. I need help to get out of this mess. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. When you ask for help, listen to it. Ninth, enjoy the gouging, tearing, plucking, cutting, and tossing. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 30. That's Jesus's emphasis on pursuing sanctification. Don't fear the temporary loss. Fear the eternal loss. Tenth, pursue the struggle of sanctification. Don't wait until you sin. Pursue the struggle of sanctification. You say, oh, but it's hard. Okay. The preacher to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 4, remember what he says? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Meaning, pony up, buddy. Let's go. You've got more to give. Eleventh, remember you're free. Don't be a slave to the sin that Christ has died to free you from. You're a slave to righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verse 18. What's it say? Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. We can't but not follow righteousness. We must follow righteousness. Twelfth, don't forget how bad sin is. Sin is worse than you can imagine. Bunyan said it like this. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. Thirteenth, don't be too proud to run. First Timothy 6, 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Talking about the unrighteous, flee these things. It comes from the word of, that we get fugitive from. Run, run like your life depends on it, away from these things. Thirteen. That's 13. 14, don't think you're done until you're done. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. faith. Finish the race, friend. Don't quit early. Bottom line, fight your flesh. Don't give in. Because when we, in the verse 14, gratify the desires of the flesh, what are we doing? Here's what we're doing. We're putting off Christ and putting on darkness. There should be an urgency to how we live because we want to look like Christ when he returns to find us. Jesus is coming back. Wake up, friend. If you love him, you will live for him and you will live for him like him. You will pursue purity. I wonder how will he find you when he returns? Living in this world for this age, or living for him. Know the time is near. He is near. Prepare for war. Our flesh is strong, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is coming back for us. Show no mercy to sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what our Savior has done for us. But we do ask for your help. Though you have 
saved us by your grace through faith in Christ and his work. If that's true, we still realize our responsibility to you is to live for your glory, to put off sin, to put on Christ, and we fail. So help us. Encourage our hearts to know that our Savior is coming back. Motivate our hearts to know that our Savior is coming back. Enable our hearts to live for him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.